1: And welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Cubans have eagerly embraced cryptocurrencies as a clever way of bypassing American financial sanctions. But centralized communism and decentralized digitization are an uneasy mix. The government wants to muscle in. And for thousands of years, observers of the natural world have pondered on how eels find their spawning grounds and where exactly they mate anyway. New research offers an answer to this slippery mystery. But first. Today in Minneapolis, Voters will decide whether or not the city's police department should be reformed. It's nearly 18 months since the murder of George Floyd shook the city. In the protests around America in the wake of his death, one slogan took hold.
0: You need to defund our law enforcement. We need to be militant and strong and demanding
2: that we defund the police.
1: Since then, there has been a lot of debate over what defund the police actually means, or rather, about how American police forces might be reformed. At times, anything from abolition to increasing mental health provision has been argued over. At the federal level, a much-vaunted bipartisan reform deal fizzled out in Congress, and rising rates of violent crime have made cuts in police budgets look hasty. Today's vote is crunch time for the defunding debate.
2: Voters in Minneapolis are deciding whether or not to keep their mayor, Jacob Frye, but they're also deciding on a referendum on whether or not to replace their police department with an entirely new one, which they're going to call the Department of Public Safety.
1: Idris Kaloun, the Economist's Washington correspondent, has been reporting in Minneapolis.
2: And this is going to be a department that, quote-unquote, employs a comprehensive public health approach to policing. It would also get rid of a minimum staffing requirement for police officers that has existed in the city charter for several decades.
1: And Idris, how do people in Minneapolis view these ballot measures on overhauling the police?
2: If Democrats were united in agreeing that the police needed to be overhauled in the way that uh, proponents of this referendum set out, then it wouldn't be controversial. It's a very democratic city. There are roughly nine Biden voters for every Trump voter. The issue is that Democrats are divided and many of the most prominent Democrats in the state, both of its senators and its governor, are opposed to the idea. Jacob Fry, the mayor who's running for reelection, is also running against the measure whereas both of his strongest competitors agree that something does need to change. The polling suggests that the vote will be quite close and pretty split, so we'll have to see what is ultimately decided. But it'll definitely be closely watched by other cities, many of which have tried to make something out of the moment after George Floyd in terms of policing reform, but have found that much tougher than initially advertised.
1: And what would the reform in Minneapolis mean in practice?
2: So everyone agrees that law enforcement officers would remain if the ballot were to pass. What the proponents say is that the minimum staffing requirement would go. And so there would be more money in their minds for different kinds of responses to situations that might occur. So, for example, greater funding for responses by mental health professionals, substance abuse counselors, as opposed to sending armed police to deal with situations on the street. One of the people I spoke to for this story was probably the strongest challenger to Jacob Fry, an activist named Sheila Najad, who helped lead the drafting of the referendum, but is also running to be mayor. And she argues that the Minneapolis Police Department, or what she calls the MPD, spends a lot of money in the wrong way.
0: In MPD, we are spending not thousands, but millions of dollars on things that have nothing to do with direct response to help people. So we spend $3 million on the canine unit. Mm -hmm. We spend nearly a $1 million on the horses. How many youth could we have given jobs last summer with that $3 million of canine money? How much car theft, property theft would that have prevented? Because most of that was done by...
1: Now, we heard the slogan defund the police a lot last year after the killing of, of George Floyd. This sounds much less drastic.
2: There's a reason for that. The proponents of the referendum are very much avoiding... The word defund at all costs, the word that Ms. Najad, who previously had expressed some sympathy for the idea of police abolition, is reinvest. But all the same, she credits those ideas for helping move the debate to its current form.
0: Right. There's a spectrum of approachability, palatability, but those furthest on the left are what push the narrative. I never in my life thought I would be having voter calls and people would be like, well, I'm not quite sure about abolition, but I do think we need to change the system.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. It's wild.
2: (laughs) Instead, it's being sold to voters on the tagline of expand public safety. There's very much an avoidance of any mention of defund the police. And what
1: do those who are against the proposal say?
2: One of the people I spoke to was the mayor, Jacob Fry who said that he's for reforming public safety but is not in favor of this amendment because it is basically just a backdoor to defunding the police. But ultimately, the recommendation that fewer police are needed to deal with the issues facing Minneapolis is incorrect.
3: I'm not for defunding the police. And I may have a different position if I was the mayor of a different city. But right now in Minneapolis, we have fewer officers per capita than just about every major city in the entire country. It is impacting residents.
1: Does Mr Fry have a theory as to why this is happening through the back door, as you put it?
2: He argues that the reason that phrasing has changed is that the political winds have shifted and that in the summer of 2020, saying defund the police was a slogan that Democrats actually found to some degree to be palatable. It's much less palatable today. The narrative all along, up until maybe five months ago, six months ago,
3: was they would be defunding the police and allocating the money elsewhere. And the only thing that's changed
2: is the political wins. The data from polling suggests that as well. Defund the police was never a particularly popular slogan. But back in June 2020, 41% of Democrats said that they thought it was a good idea. The most recent polling shows that that support had dropped to 25%. So even among Democrats, there's been a sizable drop.
1: And why do you think those political wins have, have shifted?
2: I think the big reason on people's minds is the just enormous rise in in homicides. So homicides in 2020 increased 30 percent over their level in 2019, which is the largest single year rise. And fairly or not, energy for reform is always inversely related to the level of crime that's, that's happening at the time. So that has put, I think, reformers in the delicate position of having to walk back from some of the most extreme examples that, that they've tried to put forward. And it, it's not just Minneapolis. You know, in August 2020, the Austin City Council voted to cut $130 million off of their police budget of $400 million. They also saw a crime spike, as did many other places in, in the country. And they have now had to reverse themselves and actually increase the level of funding to $440 million. Voters in Austin are going to consider a referendum to impose a minimum staffing requirement, which is almost identical to the one that Minneapolis is voting to get rid of. You've seen similar backlashes in Seattle, Atlanta, New York City, places that have tried to take the very simple lever of just cutting police budgets in response to the national moment of last year and finding that actually that that didn't do the work. It didn't reform the police and it didn't necessarily make cities safer either.
1: So how can city government square this circle? On the one hand, reforming the police, but on the other, tackling the rise in violent crime.
2: If you talk to people like Mayor Fry, what he says is that it requires lots of incremental reform, things like banning chokeholds and requiring that police officers actually wear their body cameras when they're doing stops and avoiding trying to make policy by slogans. The election needs to be a turning point where we
3: get serious about the work. We we have a serious conversation about a serious topic and we move beyond magic wand fixes because they don't
2: exist. Even though the referendum is on a fairly narrow local issue, I mean, this is about a charter in Minneapolis and whether or not it should be amended. It will definitely be seen nationally as a referendum on whether or not the defund the police movement has much energy anymore or whether or not there is a way to reform the police without necessarily resorting to slogans in order to accomplish that.
1: Idris, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about... Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are,
3: tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A year ago, the
1: Trump administration imposed a series of sanctions on Cuban products and institutions. These actions will ensure that US dollars do not fund the Cuban regime and go directly to the Cuban people. Caught up in those sanctions were banks that processed remittances from Cuban's family members abroad. Almost overnight, institutions in Cuba handling those remittances shut up shop, taking an economic lifeline with them. Joe Biden promised relief from his predecessor's changes.
0: I tried to reverse the failed Trump policies and inflicted harm on Cubans and their families. It's done nothing to advance democracy
1: and human rights. But since taking office, his administration has backtracked on that pledge.
0: The ability to send remittances to, back to Cuba. Uh, I would not do that now because the fact is it's highly likely that the regime would confiscate those remittances or big chunks of it.
1: In Cuba, digital payment platforms such as Visa, Mastercard, PayPal and Stripe are already off limits. So Cubans have had to get creative. In August, when the government announced it would recognise and regulate cryptocurrencies, it was stepping into an already thriving digital currency market.
0: Cryptocurrencies became popular in Cuba after the sanctions imposed by President Trump.
1: Roseanne Lake is the economist's Cuba correspondent.
0: Cubans abroad who wanted to send remittances to family members on the island didn't have a way to, and so they switched to cryptocurrencies.
1: And how exactly do cryptocurrencies help Cubans abroad send money home?
0: Let's say someone in Miami wants to send 100 US dollars to his mom. He would buy $100 worth of cryptocurrency, so Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, and send it to someone in Cuba that has agreed to keep that Bitcoin and deliver the equivalent 100 U.S. dollars to the sender's mother. And this started off in a pretty informal way. It was done over Signal, WhatsApp, Telegram. But then an industry started to spring up. Uh, one company, Bitremessas, is particularly well-known. It matches crypto sellers abroad with buyers on the island.
1: But now the government's stepping in. Tell me a bit more about this announcement they made over the summer.
0: So this announcement that they made at the end of August when the Cuban central bank said that they would recognize and regulate cryptocurrencies, there was speculation that this could be sort of the precursor to cryptocurrencies being more widely accepted for payments in Cuba. I think they're trying to take the temperature. Of this cryptocurrency market. So they see an opportunity because obviously they're very keen to get remittances into the country. The country is facing a very severe cash crunch and remittances are a very important lifeline. But at the same time, they've been trying to regulate black market activity for a long time. And they probably see crypto as a bit of a threat in that regard, right? You're less able to keep tabs on where money is going and how much of it people have. They did also say that brokers would need a license to continue trading. They haven't said much more since. And I think a lot of people said, look, there's loads of black market activity trading dollars for euros or dollars for pesos on every street corner in Cuba. And they haven't managed to regulate that. So how on earth are they going to require brokers to have a license to trade? I think their top priority is to really just get the remittances into the country and they can't really be too selective. If that's what they really want.
1: Now, we've discussed on the show before that El Salvador has recognized Bitcoin as an official currency. Is the use of cryptocurrencies becoming more common across the region?
0: We are seeing that. So in parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, they are experimenting with alternatives to cash. So El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender in September. It was the first country to do so. The president said it would help Salvadorians abroad send money home. In the short term, this would generate jobs and help provide financial inclusion to thousands outside the formal economy. But people in El Salvador actually protested when it happened. The idea being that cryptocurrency can be volatile and their economy is one that needs stability. Also in Venezuela, you have Nicolas Maduro, who introduced you know, Venezuela's digital bolivar in August. That operates a bit differently. It's basically just lopping six zeros off a hyperinflated currency. There were some concerns in Cuba when the central bank made the announcement about crypto that Cuba would just be copying Venezuela. But so far, that doesn't seem to be true. And then, of course, outside of the region, you have China experimenting with the digital yuan and the EU with the digital euro.
1: So how does experience with crypto in Cuba compare with that in, say, El Salvador?
0: Well, I think you have a very different case from El Salvador because in El Salvador, it was kind of the government taking the lead, whereas in Cuba, it's the people. And for most Cubans, cryptocurrency is still largely a pass-through asset used to obtain U.S. dollars, euros, or MLC that they need to buy in grocery stores, which means that its benefits as a store of value or even as a decentralized currency don't really apply in the same way. But there's hope that that can change, right? As Cubans continue to be crypto-curious, maybe it is an asset that they'll want to hang on to. And we're already starting to see lots of entrepreneurs opening storefronts, digital storefronts on platforms like slick which allow them to be paid for their services so you know consulting on social media or web design app development all services that they offer They can be paid in cryptocurrency, which gives them more work opportunities, right? Because otherwise, if you're abroad and you hire a Cuban freelancer, how do you pay them? You can't use Visa, you can't use Zelle, you can't use Stripe. So I think there's a lot of potential for cryptocurrency in Cuba. But, you know, you also have to consider the limits of one of the world's most centrally planned economies. I think ultimately it's probably going to take a bit more than the centralized currency to dislodge that.
1: Roseanne, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much, Patrick.
1: The question of where freshwater eels reproduce has long puzzled observers of the natural world. No sexually mature eel has ever been captured alive and no spawning event has ever been observed. But new research offers an intriguing explanation for why their spawning grounds have proved so hard to find.
3: There are two things, really, that make eels such slippery customers to track.
1: Gilad Amit is a science correspondent for The Economist.
3: First... They spawn in the vastness of the open ocean rather than a conveniently enclosed space like a river or a lake, which you could trawl. And second, they're comfortable navigating at tremendous depths, which means even if you did manage to put a tracker on an eel, the tracker wouldn't be able to transmit data to a satellite from the depths at which the animals swim. Eels like the European eel, which used to be found all over the continent, make some of the longest migrations in the animal kingdom. And we don't know how they manage to travel thousands of kilometres back and forth without getting lost.
1: Are there any theories for how they make
3: that journey? We've known for some time that eels are capable of detecting magnetic north. They have a sort of biological compass. But there are plenty of other migrating animals which have a more sophisticated version of this ability. They can tell not only the direction of magnetic north, but also how close to it they are. A long-standing hypothesis is that eels also have this ability. It's not implausible, although it has yet to be experimentally verified. But some scientists have said that because the unique migration routes that eels take over such long distances and at such depths, they've doubted whether this kind of sensitivity would even be useful. And a new paper by Caroline Durif at Norway's Institute of Marine Research demonstrates for the first time that this sense would be useful in helping them navigate.
1: And what did that paper find?
3: So her team were the first to compare geomagnetic field lines on Earth's surface with the tracking data that we have of eels. And the researchers revealed a pattern that was consistent across five major species of eel, which is to say that all larvae tended to drift to regions of higher magnetic intensity, so towards the poles, and adults then followed the reverse trajectory. And her hypothesis is that eels retain a memory Of the magnetic intensity that prevailed at the spot where they were born and then they seek it out once they mature possibly even retracing the variation that they encountered when young in reverse in the case of european eels this means they would swim south heading for the belt of equal magnetic intensity roughly from the canary islands to the sargasso sea and then they would head west across the atlantic
1: so if Dr. Dourif is correct. What would this mean for this great mystery of where eels reproduce?
3: So her hypothesis is that eels don't just mate in the Sargasso Sea, but as these billions of organisms congregate on this vast highway heading west, there will likely be sexual activity sort of on the party bus and not just at the uh, nightclub at the final destination. And secondly, Earth's magnetic field shifts over the course of years because it depends on disturbances in the metallic core of the Earth. So an eel seeking out its home turf when it's an adult may well wind up hundreds of kilometres away from the spot where it was born, which could also uh, have led biologists to, to search in the wrong places.
1: So it sounds as if this could be quite an important study.
3: If it allows us to, to spot eel spawning in the wild, which is something that we've searched for for thousands of years, then absolutely. It could also have practical implications. Europe's eel populations are at quite a low ebb. Almost all of the continent's eels are concentrated on the Atlantic coast at the moment. And at the moment, 60% of eels caught in Europe have to be used for restocking many are flown from France to the Baltic Sea. The hope is that that they would benefit from the lack of competition. They grow large, they grow healthy, and they would have plenty of eel babies once they get back to the Sargasso. But studies have shown that they struggle to exit the Baltic. They swim southwest as if they were still in France and they get trapped in the sea rather than going out and contributing to the next generation. And if Dr. Dureff's hypothesis is right, this might be because the eels never got the chance to imprint their journey and so cannot reconstruct it. Which means that if the magnetic theory is right, this could help European population leave its endangered status behind.
1: Gilad, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Patrick. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligent offer. See you back here tomorrow.